And music had such a strong power for creating social movements, political movements, gathering, creating feelings inside of people that it can really be used as a force for good. The impact of involving the community and the general public and presenting these like solutions and ideas and concepts is far greater than anything that any other brand or industry could deliver because it's right there in front of them. Welcome to Wannabe Greener with me, Harriet Robinson. This is the podcast exploring the small changes that make a huge difference when it comes to sustainability. We shine a light on the people who are working so hard to protect our planet and create a more conscious society. And it's series three. We got there. It's been a little while. Uh, We covered a bunch of topics in the past couple of series from litter picking to eco-anxiety to fashion. And all my guests have been so incredible, but I can't wait for you to get stuck into the next few episodes. So today we're talking about something that might not be the first thing you really think about when it comes to having a conversation about sustainability. The music industry is worth almost £5 billion to the UK economy, and it's an industry that has a big influence on trends and attitudes. People are seven times more likely to follow advice or... Uh, behaviour change from a person of influence than they are a politician or someone that is involved in making policy. From the plastic cups at gigs and festivals to the flights taken by touring artists to the plastic used to create vinyl, it all adds up. But there are some amazing people out there working really hard to bring about change. So joining me today are two of those people who are doing some really ambitious stuff to change the music and events industries. Ross Patel runs Whole Entertainment, which works with artists around the UK offering management and label services. The company makes huge efforts to reduce its own environmental impact as well as that of its clients, including working to get climate commitments into artist contracts. Ross has also taken some personal steps to try to influence the music industry as a whole, sitting on the Music Managers Forum, which is the world's largest membership of music managers, where they lead on all climate initiatives. Pauline Bourdon works with Team Love to make their UK and international festivals and events more sustainable, but also focusing on improving engagement from staff and festival goers, so that it's a kind of mutual goal that everyone is working towards. She's the founder of Solifilia, a company dedicated to helping musicians have a positive positive impact on the planet and she's also a college lecturer teaching the next generation of events managers to have sustainability values embedded in their plans rather than as an afterthought as is often the case. We talk about what the biggest problems are within the music industry, why it has a unique advantage in its efforts to bring about change and of course what we can all do to help it along. So as people working primarily in music and events, I wanted to know first what it was that inspired Pauline and Ross to start focusing so heavily on sustainability and climate action. For me, it was a really clear marker and it was it was at the start of the pandemic. And the reason for that is that I, do, I, I feel like I've always kind of lived my own life with that level of sort of conscious awareness around climate issues and social issues. And I, I try and kind of do, do my best where I can. Um, but as a company, because it was at the time only four years in, um, you know, for the management company, 
I just hadn't had the time or the space to do it. And actually, one of the things that the pandemic gave us, even though we were still very, very busy, um, it gave me the space to kind of sit down and look at our business practices and develop some more kind of creative ways of integrating climate action into what we do. And I just hadn't had that opportunity up until that point. And it felt like the time was right to not only look at how we operate internally, but then to be more vocal about that as well. So there were a lot of things happening during the pandemic. And I think a lot of people were spending more time online. I realized that most management companies don't have a kind of public facing kind of brand or communications system or message that they that they will run with. So it felt like it's one thing to ask your clients to speak out on climate action. But, you know, you have to, in my opinion, lead by example and show them that you're also dedicated to that and that it's coming from a genuine place because then they're more likely to buy into it and and come on board with any suggestions that you might have. And I think there is a disconnect there with a lot of managers and artists. You know, it's it's one thing that an artist might, and I see this quite a lot, where artists really do care and want to take some action, but they don't have management teams that are invested in the same cause. They're more concerned about how much money they're making, which is fair and also a, a, a necessity. But there has to be a point where those interests align and... I think the hard work at the moment, which does bear fruit, is finding those partnerships in the industry, finding the artists who also have the managers who really care and want to take action together. Because unfortunately, if you find one, but they don't have the other, you probably won't get very far. Um, so, yeah, that was that was, a yeah, I guess, the March 2020. I mean, that is like a massive problem generally, I think, with the climate movement is growth and economy and money and just people not wanting to lose any of that to be able to help you know protect the environment and so in any kind of business industry you work in you're going to face that kind of barrier aren't you of somebody saying yeah but that's going to affect the business so what's more important um but yeah Pauline what about you did you have a kind of light bulb moment where you were like this is what this is what I need to do um yes and no yes kind of the pandemic time but no in the sense that because I I was yeah living in France before and that is um, most of our cultural offer whether you're a theater or a festival is financed by public money so therefore you've got that social and environmental duty of care in what you do so for you know when I was eight years ago the reusable cups at the bars for festivals in France that was a given um, the city was paying for the operation. Um, the city was giving you money for your waste management operations. So you had all these volunteers like sorting out waste straight away in front of you, even for a day festival. So that was just really embedded into my, my background. Um, and then I moved in the UK and it was just really weird because it was a lot of things were happening in that DIY rebellious culture and we're going to make ha- things happen and people were caring but it was not institutionalized in the way it was in France. So for a long time, I was just not quite sure which way I could bring that side of me, either if it was me bringing it to the UK or me bringing the UK to France, so using French infrastructures, basically, and then that English creativeness that I really, really love and find absolutely fascinating. But then things started to change and the discussions starting to change. So I was like, oh, maybe there is 
something to I could be doing with it. And I just approached Team Love and I was like, okay, during the winter, I I geek on PDF and reports and I just played around with your company and I just kind of applied some sustainability principles and hear what I think about it. And I was already working with them and they were like, okay, cool, let's let's bring you in and see what you can do there. So that was the first in and then the pandemic hit. And for me, it was more like um, a shock to see that the industry starting finally having conversations that I've been trying to have for the last six years, basically. I was like, oh my God, something is shifting. People are actually looking at it. People are seeing the emergency within it. Um, so because of that, I was like, okay, what what is missing? And And I was trying to, you know, I love being a sustainability coordinator, but my background is with artists. So yeah, I was just kind of trying to find a new platform and filling those gaps between managers, agents, artists that wanted to take a stand. And that's why I then launched my company to find that new ways of interacting and be a kind of the missing link between all these different actors and help artists being able to, you know, like a business. I have a sustainability policy. If you work with me, whether you're my manager, tour manager, record label, this is the principle by which uh, I want to work and, you know, build a career upon. So it was a mix of, of both, but the pandemic has been very, mm. very impactful on that side. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll talk about the pandemic a little bit later because I think um, there's been like two kind of sides to it where it's like made people think about it and it's also made people worry about something else instead of the green stuff. But I think we need to get into why the music industry needs, um, you know, this help because I think, you know, myself as a music fan, I go out, I go to a gig, I buy a few drinks, or I go to a festival, maybe for me because I'm concerned about the environment, but for the everyday person, what are the problems within the industry? Why do we need to be making these changes? Pauline, I know you're like the stats and figures lady, so maybe you can uh, help us out there. What, what are the problems? Exactly the same that we have in society, um, basically, there is nothing specific to the music industry that makes it different in the sense of impact. Every levels of our society has an impact. We all travel, we all consume, um, we all you know do these things on day to day life that has an impact. So the music industry on that level is very much the same, uh, but then it has very high peak of impact that potentially other other you know industries wouldn't have. Um, something else that I find interesting is that it's an industry that has a lot of public, how to say, there is a public image to it. It's an industry that everyone can have an opinion on, can visualize, can kind of understand or look way much more than, um, you know, cruising companies. No one really has that vision of what is waste when you take a six month cruise, for example. But festivals, you've seen the pictures of the wasteland, you've seen all these things. So people have way much more not understanding, but they, they they look at that industry way much more than many other industries because it's so public. You mean like at festivals when you see like all the tents yeah. left behind and the yeah. rubbish and stuff like that? You yeah. wouldn't see, a, for example, if you think about the film industry, you don't have this image of at the end of a, of a set when all the waste is on the floor or the daily waste of having catering for all this time of people mm. or the trailers traveling. You don't think about that. But in the music industry, because it's so public, you know, touring, you go to gigs, you move, and it's very much in the public eye. I think, yeah, it's just there is that focus on it that makes it sometimes it's a good thing and also sometimes a bit of a of a bad thing, I would say. But we have 
through the specificity of traveling for artists, for example, there is definitely very big impact. There is some data that I've pulled out from the amazing clean scene report, which is a report that they've done called last night, a DJ took a flight and it's amazing. And they kind of looked at the top thousand DJs on resident advisors. They looked at their tour and just calculated how much, you know, how miles it was, how much emissions. So it is advised that people kind of have, in terms of emission, two tons of CO2 per year. That's the average for someone living their life normally, traveling and, you know, consuming. A DJ's is about 35 ton um, of CO2 emissions per year. But then again, you find the discrepancies with the top and the bottom, which is the bottom 100 DJs. Actually, it's only 3.3 tons on average a year. The top 100 DJs, therefore, at 88 tons of CO2 in average. So it's a bit like the thing you said with it being like society, you know, I suppose like the rich and famous people are flying their private jets and using yeah. loads of emissions and the everyday person, not so much. If and drive a splitter from crew show to show, maybe take, you know, a smaller trips between Europe, which have had more people in, so therefore there is less impact than jet setting. So you find exactly the same issues within our industry um, that you find mm. in society, which is makes it even more interesting because then we can play around we can test things on people that's what i like to see at festival is a bit like living labs um and music had such a strong power for you know creating social movements political movements gathering creating feelings inside of people that it can really be used as a force for good yeah i, I saw i don't know if you were involved in this but at boomtown this year there was like a rave up cleanup wasn't there so they were getting all of the people they did like two hours or an hour every day playing like real live music and trying to get mm -hmm. people to clean up I don't know if you were part of that but do you know if it was kind of successful and that people were actually getting involved with it yeah I've, I wasn't part of it I was in the artist welcome uh, at Boomtown but I know a lot of people were shocked about the way so Boomtown I thought it was actually better than it has ever been um mm. so that was what you say like the difference of where we came from, which when it was a sea of waste everywhere, then now you could feel like it was an end of the weekend waste. It was not five days festival waste on site. That that I could see on, on the different campsite leftovers. It was like you could feel like it has been cleaned throughout the weekend and it's probably a, like Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday, Monday morning waste leftover in the campsite. So that was quite good to see i think you're right you're, you're right though it's definitely more tangible for the general public you know mm. people don't have access to go and see how their fast fashion clothes are made they're not visiting factories and seeing what kind of waste is produced there they're not in you know they're not in industrial sites watching like toxic waste get dumped in rivers so the i the idea and the concept of that is too foreign Whereas when you're at a festival site and you can see rubbish, even though I yeah. think the global music industry emissions are like two total 2% of all emissions in the world. And that, mm. again, that disparity between actually, that's quite a low number for such a huge industry. It generates a very relatively small emissions amount. However, you're right in that the impact of involving the community and the general public and presenting these like solutions and ideas and concepts is far greater than anything that any other brand or industry could deliver because it's right there in front of them. Yeah. Um, 
And I think there's a, there was another one that I looked up, and it's like seven people are seven times more likely to follow advice or uh, behaviour change from a person of influence than they are a politician or someone that is involved in making policy. So if you have the ability to platform artists who are interested in doing altruistic work or being outspoken on these issues, their fan base is seven times more likely to agree with what they're doing and take action based on that. And that's a platform that no other industry really has. You know, and I'm talking about the entertainment industry at, at wide and like culture, but other industries can't do that. They have to, they have to pay for that. Um, whereas with us, it can be very authentic. Power of art and gathering, isn't it? It's like that influence, and which we all know really well, that energy and synergy that can happen, whether you're on a festival site, whether you're at the theatre, whether you're at the cinema, like all these different forms of art can create something inside of you that could be really powerful to shift mentality. I saw a photo of you the other day, Pauline, with Gardner, the artist who some people might know, and he'd won like a some kind of sustainability award, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, he got, um, so I've worked with Gardner on um, creating a green rider for his tour, summer tour. And then at Nostock, they were having a greenest artist award. And then that he got it with the work that we did together. So that was a really nice, it was a really nice boost for me, actually. It felt at like the right time when I think I was just going a bit low and I was like, okay, okay, again, I'm not, I'm not alone and someone is looking at this and people are looking at it. And what was even better was the reaction online. Um, that made me feel like really touched me because there is so many bias on different genre of music. Who is going to be the most enlightened crowd and who is going to be able to access these type of topics? And Ghana's crowd is, re is really, some of them, not always really young, but different type of music than electronic music, for example, where we've seen this discussion happen. Drum and bass, not so much. MCing, not so much. Sound system. So it was really amazing to see that when he posted that, all the comments were really positive and everyone really enjoyed it. So it kind of goes back to what you said, Ross. It's like suddenly, no, he didn't say I'm the greenest artist of all. It just said, that's where I'm at. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not the only one in the industry. And on top of it, we've been recognized. So jump on the on the wagon of you know sustainability and everyone was really receptive to it so that was really good and what what is a green rider like what does that consist of for an artist um so just in case people listening to the podcast don't know already what an hospitality rider is it's um, a document that explains your hospitality and technical requirement for an artist when you tour um so you can notice talk about accommodation, transport, uh, food that you would need while on tour, any equipment that you would like. So it kind of states everything that you need for your show to happen. And it is also the document that is read from pretty much every level of an artist team, from a manager, tour manager, agent. And then when you go into the promoting side, venues are going to read it, festivals are going to read it. So it is a really good document to be able to start stating I think something just a bit further. Uh, what do I want in terms of recycling facilities in the venue? Do I want single-use plastic? Like the famous case is when you work in artist liaison at festival, everyone asks for a pot of hummus. So suddenly you find yourself with 65 individually wrapped pot of hummus from which most of the people are going to take four or five dips each. And then at the end of the day, you just got all that single-use plastic, you know, that is leftovers and, and food waste. So it's about kind of starting to interrogate your practices in that 
encouraging venues and promoters to take action within their spaces. So for a venue, it could be, you know, I would like to play in a venue that has works on renewable energies, for example, and just starting to state all these requirements that you have around environmental practice. But I also think that Green Rider is just not environment. I like to see it with the inclusion, diversity and safer space side to it. And then so you've got also all these clauses where you state um, that you want to see underrepresented artists being put on the lineup or you want, you know, your security to be trained, you know, in inclusivity and diversity, being able for the public to choose which security they're going to be searched by, for example, um, having safe space on site uh, for your public to be who they want to be and just not being stigmatised. So it's kind of all that in one document that everyone can read um, awesome so kind of ethics as well as sustainability yeah all covered really but sustainability is three pillars so that's why i always bring the social it's environmental social and economics mm. so you need to move throughout these three important sections to be sustainable if you just do environmental plus 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 the likelihood is that you might be on the verge of doing green capitalism if you don't think about alternative economic models in which way you do it. I think I think it's important to recognise as well that not everyone is capable of doing everything, but everyone is capable of doing something. Um, mm. And I spoke at an event at the Future Yard in Birkenhead, which is just near Liverpool. There's an amazing tour manager, uh, Natalie Kandel, who invited me to, to come to that. And she does brilliant work in making tours more sustainable. And the venue was... A, a brilliant example of all of the various steps that they'd taken to really assess the way that they operate. And the whole thing was carbon negative. It's run on clean energy. It's a plant-based menu. There's all of these things. And that means that they have this huge amount of interest from touring artists who want to play specifically at that venue because they can cater for all of those things. And even if you're another venue that can't necessarily do it. Maybe you're tied into an energy contract already and you, you can't get out of that and you don't have the options. There are other things that you can do and it's just about adopting those practices that work for you. But absolutely, having Green Riders helps draw attention to that and lets, lets everyone in the team know that there is interest for that change. And I think that's the really important thing is that you have to signal the desire for that change and create some urgency around it or else people will lose you know time over making that decision and we just have to be a bit more firm with when we want it yeah and it adds up isn't it that's why i said to the artists i work and they're like yeah but i'm not big enough for example or i don't know how to debate that and i'm like it's not about you you know pushing it on them it's about this year, they might no stock might have one artist with a green rider, maybe. Next year, they're going to have seven. The year after, they're going to have 25. So it's like the more people are doing it, and then people will end up by changing their practices because every single individual action adds up if it can be created properly. And that's where the power of it comes comes in place to be able to do that. Sounds very French revolutionary. But yeah, like one plus one plus one plus one, then you get the system to change. Uh, that's very much how I see it. No, 100%. Yeah, all about small steps. That's what I think anyway. Um, Ross, I, I was just going to ask you, I mean, you work very directly with artists as, you know, running a management company. 
the artists that you work with, you know, like uh, Aldo Allen, Billy Lockett, um, can't think of the other names now. Um, are they all kind of on board? Because obviously this is something you're really passionate about. And I know we're talking about it coming from the artists. Is this something that they uh, also, you know, really passionate about? And what specific changes have you put in for them? I think the two that you mentioned, Elder Island and, and Billy, they were very receptive to integrating, you know, some changes into how they, how they run their business at, at a cost to them, you know, very admirably. Uh, and I think that's so important to recognise because they're not artists that have loads of disposable income. And for them to make a decision, even if they only do something once, because that's what they can afford to do, that should be celebrated. We would, of course, like to do a lot more uh, and we will be doing more. We've done a couple of things with both, both uh, where we calculated tour emissions for just the travel and we offset that by funding uh, climate action projects. I use offset as a word kind of loosely. It's just more kind of funding climate initiatives. But with Billy, we did a tree planting campaign for his EP. So every unit that was sold, a tree was planted. And that, again, was at cost to him. We didn't pass that on to the fans. But it really helped raise awareness and cemented their interest in doing something. And we also did the the touring calculations for, for Billy on a tour. The rest of the roster, there is definitely interest. And it's something that people... Very keen on. Uh, I work with a singer-songwriter called Danny Sylvia, who is a kind of staunch climate activist. But again, I think we have to acknowledge, and I think this is something that I've talked about before, that not all artists have the luxury or the, the privilege to be able to take drastic climate action. And that, again, is reflected in society. People at the bottom or people that have low emissions and low, like small carbon footprints are not responsible, in, in my opinion, for making these changes. It's everyone that has the luxury and the privilege and the resource to be able to make the big changes. And that's who we really should be looking to. Because if you want to sustain a career in music, you're going to need everything you can get to get that off the ground. And hopefully then when you're successful and you still have that altruistic tendency, you will, you know, feed back into the system and create those changes as Massive Attack and Billie Eilish and Coldplay have done. And the work that they have done is amazing and should absolutely be celebrated and should not be singled out as, yeah, but they've got loads of money, so of course they can do it. Actually, they've drawn up these incredible blueprints that the rest of the industry can follow, that any artist can look at and say, that thing appeals to me and it's something that I think I'm capable of doing, I'll do that. And it's okay to not do the rest, but it's better than doing nothing. And without those artists going out and doing a huge amount of work in partnership with the Tyndall Centre or the London University, you know, these, these teams that have been involved in assessing their business practice and delivering it in a really brilliant, transparent kind of reporting methodology has meant that it's available to everyone and you pick and choose. So I think it's about having some, some sort of empathy and compassion for artists that are starting up and not squashing creativity because they're not taking enough action, but constantly feeding in suggestions, ideas, platforming people like Gardner who have the inclination to do something, whatever they can possibly do, they'll do it. And, you know, continuing to... I guess, 
leave the door open for more bigger artists to also come through and do the same work that's been done by others um, because they're the ones that will have substantial impact because of yeah. you know where they're at in their careers. I mean, I don't know why people would criticise people like, you know, like you said, Billie Eilish and Coldplay because, yeah, of course they should be doing stuff like that, but there's lots of people with money who aren't doing things like that. There's billionaires who aren't doing anything for the environment, right? Exactly. And pe- people forget, and I think people like to criticize and I also feel like there's an element of it that's out of everybody's control and it's a media narrative and then Mm. you know people generally attach themselves to whatever the stronger narrative is regardless of whether that's a true reflection of how they feel or how the community has responded to it or how the industry has responded to it so I think as individuals it's our duty to ensure that we are celebrating those things we are being vocal about those things we are sharing it with people and we are encouraging more people to come forward because that's really what it's about I think we find a lot of the time when working directly with talent there's a fear it's it's like climate paralysis you know they they don't want to speak out or they're concerned that they're not going to do it in a way that's genuine to them or they feel forced into it it's not the right time they you know they're restricted by funds There are many reasons for them to not take action and we have to reduce those barriers to entry. Yeah, and the idea of perfection in the the climate movement is is changing and shifting, but before it's always been like that. It was people very, you know, extreme environmentalists that were changing everything in their lifestyle, very much to the, you know, left, independent, self-sufficient type of of narrative that we had so for everyone it's like we need unless you're at that level you can't talk about it but you which is not true we all we all live in a capitalist system that makes it so hard to do the right choices constantly so it's like i think the idea of privilege was really well said ross it's like where i'm at what privilege do i have that can make these changes easy and if it is then i should make them in order for other people to not have to make them because it's really hard and and also the idea that, you know, people have low incomes aren't sustainable. Actually, if you look at when you struggle, that's when you're really good at reusing food. That's when you're really creative at storing, you know, things that you need on daily. That's when you can't afford to take your cut. So, again, there is different narrative that has been always portrayed that, which is really good, are changing now on that idea that we can all do what we can where we at and then build upon yeah, I relate to that a lot with, with festivals and my own personal relationship to it, really. It's like some of sometimes I've been worse since I've worked in sustainability on my own practice because I work so much on these bigger changes. So then my brain doesn't have the space to take the time to make these daily choices of preparing my food three days ahead. Like there is a lot of things that comes into people's mind. And something that I find quite fascinating with climate is it's so hard to comprehend. It's such a hard psychological process and mental health process and grieving to be able to host the scope of what is going on is that people deflect it really easily. It's easy to say, I'm not going to recycle because blah, blah, blah is not good. But then you would never say that about human rights. You would never say, oh, why would bother with uh, women's rights in the UK when other countries don't have it? That would be unacceptable. You wouldn't say that with racism either so it's just really interesting how environmentalism can you know quite a lot be oh if no one does the big things then i won't do it then in other movements today 
it's unacceptable to think that you wouldn't actively, proactively be anti-racist or feminist or fighting for these things, even if other don't do it. Um, so I like to bring sometimes that I'm like, why can't you do it on the environmental action that you can so strongly do on other values and important systemic change? And a lot of time people are like, oh, yeah, you're right. I sound a bit stupid saying that. <laughs> I definitely find with the climate issue that it is it is more complex than some of those other issues. And it is complex because it affects people in different ways. And when you look at it globally, and I think we always have to take a global intersectional view of yeah. how it's impacting people and what people are capable of. And I think that, you know, the idea of, of privilege, I think there's some reframing that needs to be done there. I think a lot of people, especially those that have it, view it as something that's often derogatory or they're offended if you tell them that they're privileged when actually we should take ownership of the privileges that we all have individually. Mine will be different to yours. Ours will be different to people in other countries and different, you know, environments that they live in, even in this country. And it's about celebrating those privileges, taking ownership of them and, and using them. Because actually, I think that they're very positive things. And with those privileges come opportunities that we can take for having altruistic change. Um, or for creating altruistic change and nurturing that. And I think that the more we kind of acknowledge that and are not scared of having privilege, but actually how we can use it, the quicker we can see change happen. I mean, I'd like to think that after, you know, the recent heat wave, people are kind of thinking about how it affects them a little bit more anyway. I don't know if they are, but I, I, I wonder whether what you were just saying, Pauline, about like, it's not happening here kind of thing. I think there is a little bit of that with sustainability. You know, we live in the UK, which is quite a privilege. Lots of things don't really affect us. Like even, you know, climate change at the moment isn't really affecting us that badly. If we drop litter on the floor, somebody else picks it up. If we use a bit of plastic, we just throw it in the recycling or the bin and we never think about it again. Whereas in lots of other places in the world, it is directly affecting them. But hopefully people are starting to have a little bit more kind of, I don't know, a bit more of an ethical stance on the whole thing about how it not just affects them, but it affects other people. Sympathy, really, I think we miss in the movement. It's how that economical and societal system has disconnected us from empathy, pure empathy for other human beings and nature and that global, you know, what we are, Earth, like we're all part of the same ecosystem, but we've been so completely separated from that global ecosystem of people, nature, movement, that it just becomes really hard. And, and like Ross said, the intersectionality of, of the issues that we're facing is extremely important. Uh, racism is not separate from climate change. Feminism is, not, you know, feminism is not separate from climate change. They're all so completely intertwined and should be which is why also I use the three pillars. It's like, it's not just saving the planet. The planet is going to be fine. The, the way it works will regenerate itself and create new ways of working out. But what we need to find is how we can coexist all together and make sure that all these different dynamics that we've created over the last 500 years that results in actually mass destructions are being shifted and changed. You're totally right. I mean, we are, I think, you know, we're in a position where we are having to now find a way to fight for harmonious survival. 
-hmm. You know, it's like as as a race, as the species, we need to figure this out. And at every challenge is an opportunity to find that solution. And I think that we have to rely on those that have the ability, the resource, the funding and the systems to enact around those solutions that will benefit everyone. They have to. And I think that's really where the focus for me should be, because it's where you'll have the most amount of impact. It's where you can scale things really quickly. And we have the capabilities. You know, it's just amazing when you see what we're capable of in certain situations. You know, there's an entire city in Las Vegas. It's a desert. It shouldn't be there. And it exists and it runs and it functions. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. We are capable of doing that. You can build Dubai yeah. and it functions and it runs. What else can we do? You know, we know that we have the capacity to create new ways of living that are harmonious to nature and that are ingenious innovations. And we just need to force that attention on those things over a wasteful, linear economy. Yeah, I think that's where arts and narrative comes in place. And Mark Hopkins did a really great job on the power of imagination. And he was, I remember the first time he used that, and I was like, oh my God. So we're so used to, for them, the movies we see, everyone right now is completely comfortable with a zombie attack, with an alien takeover, with the end of the world happening, with climate change erasing everything and us living underground. Everyone is has integrated that narrative perfectly it's no surprise such not a surprise that people can have bunkers and are ready for these things but there is no narratives where we're completely ready for a really great world <laughs> where potentially we've turned that around when we've got new creative you know cities where we've got a better health life where people work in harmony when technology has supported the ecosystem all these narratives actually we're not we're not ready for it because they don't exist. So that's also the power of artists, not only changing your career, can also be just in that narrative in bringing new stories for people to start picturing what can be and be comfortable with that in a positive way instead of, if you integrated already the collapse of society, then why would you suddenly rise up to save it? It's really interesting to look yeah. at like when that happened. I mean, I always find like zooming out and looking at when these big changes really started to happen for us as civilization and looking at the start of the industrial revolution you're talking mm. like 200 years ago fossil fuels didn't exist in our societies we have built entire systems that revolve entirely around use of fossil fuels in less than 200 years like that was before we have all of technology artificial intelligence resource globalization you know with all the resource that we have now, to undo that should be easy. And it's not that we can't do it, it's just that it's now controlled heavily by the corporations that don't want it to change. But you also have to think about at that time and everything that's followed on since, 200 years ago, people weren't looking at our natural world thinking this is going to run out at some point. It felt like it was an infinite resource. And for that reason, people imagined a dystopia because what they had was closer to paradise when you look at nature. So the idea of it has changed so subtly over that period of time that there was never a point where it was like, you know, this isn't going to last until recent years. You know, it's only been the last 60 when we've gone, hang on a minute, 
there is a general appreciation that everything that we have on this earth is not infinite. It's, it's finite. And I think that's where, you know, there was a real power struggle in not allowing public opinion to change to uh, empathise with that because oil and gas interests didn't want to see that happen. And that's what we're combating now. And I think people are more aware of it now than ever. So it's time to undo that. So bringing it back into the music industry, we've been talking from your kind of internal point of view as as people that run events and manage artists. What about people like me who love going to festivals, love going to gigs and buying and listening to music? What's our role within this to kind of make the industry more sustainable? I don't know, just behave like a nice person. <laughs> I think it's my main thing. Like, I'm not joking. I think it just really comes down to that. It's just be nice. Mm. Just think about your environments. Like, I see people, especially with ways, doing things. That, and I'm just like, in which world would you do that at, at your home? You wouldn't throw your trash on the floor at home. You wouldn't be in your garden and just leave your meal on the floor and just walk off to your bedroom is impossible so just keep these practices that you have at home of just for example putting you know your your waste in the bin and be kind with others and be open to these things and i think the main thing especially for festivals and bigger gigs is travels 80 percent of a festival carbon footprint comes from audience travel which is quite significant so thinking about you know maybe car sharing taking the bus but again I feel when we talk about privilege again we're going back to that how easy these steps are to take on your day-to-day life when you're working and you need to that's your only holidays and you want to get there quick but ultimately they are very strong steps that you can take of just don't drive alone bring at least one or two friends in your vehicle when you drive to a festival if you can take the train even better Um, If you're a cyclist, then go ahead, cycle to it and try to arrange another friend, for example, to take all your stuff. And Shambhala does that. You can can buy a cycle ticket to the event and then you just cycle and you've got priority lanes and it's just really easy to do. And all of those things are so much more fun than doing it on your own anyway. And I think, again, these are the real opportunities that we see in the cultural industries is that those actions that benefit you that benefit the planet and the environment also support and strengthen the community that we have. So the more of these things that we do, the the more aware that we are. And I think you're absolutely right. It's There are no differences in or out of the music industry. It's all about what we do as individuals, yeah. full stop. And there are loads of amazing resources out there. There's like Countersyn that has like really easy to to take steps, how you manage your money, if you're fortunate enough to have Mm -hmm. savings, where those savings are kept, if you're investing it, impact investing only. If you've got a pension, hold it in a sustainable ethical pension fund. You know, that, that alone will have such a significant impact on your personal carbon footprint that you can take that extra holiday if you want to and you could probably do it guilt-free because actually the difference in how finance is managed globally in the system that we have and where that money is invested that you have control over will be the difference between whether your annual footprint is over or below what your target is or what it should be. And yeah, just being conscious, I always find it really interesting that when the term woke started getting thrown around, that again, it was like 
derogatory and that somehow being a conscious, aware, kind and like friendly person was now a bad thing. And we, like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I just, it's, it's baffled me and I find it hilarious because you have to laugh at that. But that is what we have to foster is compassion, both yeah. for ourselves and for other people. And that will lead us into a much better place than we're in today if more people can do that. And the only way you can do it is by living that. And by being it, it's contagious and you pass it on to other people and people find a different way of responding to situations that can be tough in everyday life. So often being that person for someone will help them realise that they can be that person for someone else. And be comfortable with the uncomfortable, I think. That's something I do quite a lot. Yeah, being comfortable that you might not do the right thing all the time and it's and it's okay and integrate that and try to challenge it every time it comes in. So I like to use the moral compass. It's like just check every decision with your little moral compass, tick, 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 tick. Which one feels easy to do? We've got lots of morals. We've got lots of values. There is not just one. Sometimes one is easier to do at that time than another. So you just, okay, well, where I'm at, is it my mental health that needs to be privileged? Is it my economic situation that needs to be privileged? Is it an environmental decision that I can make that change and just constantly reassess basically um fashion is a good one for festival and music with that idea of going out and party and look fabulous all the time while there is an entire side that is feels unrelated to music that can be changed with different choices that you would make before going out for example 100 percent. i just wanted to ask how both of you are feeling about the future obviously we've just had covid and to me it's it's felt like it's put a bit of a halt on any kind of sustainability stuff in any, you know, organization or any kind of industry. Um, now we're kind of past it. Are you feeling positive about, you know, how green the music industry can become and, and whether there is a positive future ahead? I would, I would say that we did a check-in before we started this and I definitely wasn't as hopeful and as optimistic as I'm feeling now. And I think that just shows that the importance of these conversations and, again, like providing the platform for people that have interests, that want to discuss it in a way that is helpful, hopefully, to other people, does give that sense of hopefulness. And, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling much better about things now than I was at the at the beginning because it has been a really tough time and we know that you know when people are struggling financially the idea of investing in climate solutions does fall down but there are so many things that we can be doing that don't cost any money and the industry is strong together and we do have an amazing community of people that are committed to ensuring that the future is better than it is today and that is so reassuring so thank you both um, for being two of those people. Um, yeah, I think we we all need that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I also think there is also a side that is still really hard, at least for events, which is inflation and cost. You know, procurement has gone up by 30%. But there is a part is when, I don't know, one, one extreme rise, the other does. So I'm also wondering if all these difficult conditions that we are being put in 
that are so against a lot of people's value on the day to day might not create at some point a shift of we can't do this anymore. We don't want to work in this dynamic and therefore we will drastically invest into what is closer to our heart. And I can see I can see it boiling up basically. You can feel the feeling of like, why do we spend so much money on fuels? Why like you know, all these things. So I I just think as almost life gets harder, there is also a desire for change that gets louder. And therefore, my hope is that these two feelings kind of create the the dynamic and the drastic change that we need because I think people are just half hopeful, half desperate, half wanted it, half scared. So now we're just the balance needs to shift in one way and I can see it shifting in, in the hopeful side, in the green side, in the kinder side. And again, like we'll say, I feel much happier and hopeful than an hour later with our discussion. So having these spaces is really important for that. Thank you so much to my guests, Ross Patel and Pauline Bourdon. It felt like a really empowering talk. And I think it's so important to hear these positive stories about people bringing about real change in their sector. And hopefully, whether you work in the industry or just enjoy live music, it's given you a bit of hope and some inspiration to make your own changes too. As always, here's a quick recap of some of the tips Ross and Pauline gave us, including a few they sent in to me afterwards. So Pauline said, just be a good person. And Ross said, be nice. They said, sustainability is about wanting a better environment for everyone, right? So listen to other people, respect other people and the planet. Ross also said, woke is a compliment and should be celebrated. And they also said, except you can't always do everything, but you can do much more than 90% of the rest of the Earth's population own that. Yes, I love that. Great advice. Uh, Pauline said, think about your travel. Can you cycle or car share to an event? Uh, Consider the fashion you wear to festivals and gigs. Can you support local and ethical companies using sustainable practices rather than picking uh, fast fashion items you might only wear once or twice? Take a refillable water bottle and cup with you for drinks to gigs and festivals. Try to eat more vegetarian and vegan food while you're there. Make sure you know the correct bins. This is one I totally uh, agree with too because I feel like you go to a big festival and they've made so much effort to segregate the bins sometimes and people are just ignoring it. So I think that is a good one. Um, Avoid glitter and instead use face paint or makeup. And then a big one she said was be comfortable with the uncomfortable except that you won't do everything right every time and an important one everyone agreed with was uh, think about your privileges and how you can use them and don't expect everyone to have the same options uh, available to them and lastly i guess you know if you do hear of an artist like gardner who we were talking about earlier receiving a green accolade or a management company like Ross is doing so much to bring about change support them show them that you love what they're doing send them a message and just tell them how great it is and hopefully it will encourage others to to do the same thing Thank you so much for listening to Wanna Be Greener. On the next episode, I'll be speaking with the amazing author, podcaster and blogger Jen Gale, known for her blog Sustainablish. We'll be talking about her family's plan to buy nothing new for a whole year, which I'm sure you heard about. She did it 10 years ago and she's revisited it again this year. So she'll bring tons of tips for those of us wanting to reduce our consumption and enjoy living more sustainably, but in a way that works for us. 
please do hit subscribe and leave a review. I'd love to know what you thought of today's episode and I'll see you next time. Bye.